0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. What do you think is your most marked characteristic as a writer? My most marked characteristic as a writer
1: is defying conventional expectations.
0: Indeed. What is your principal defect as a writer? I want to say defying conventional expectations. Megan Whalen-Turner is the author of short stories and novels for children, teenagers, and adults. She's won the LA Times Book Award for Young Adult Literature, a Boston Globe Horn Book Honor, and a Newbery Honor. She won the Mythopoetic Award and was shortlisted twice for the Andre Norton Award. Lonnie Taylor, a New York Times best-selling author, has this to say about her work. The Queen's Thief's books awe and inspire me. They have the feel of a secret, discovered history of real but forgotten lands. The plot crafting is peerless, the revelations stunning, and the characters flawed, cunning, heartbreaking, and exceptional. Megan Whalen Turner's books have a permanent spot on my favorite shelf with space waiting for more books to come. So um, I I interview about an author a week. I read and I interview about an author a week. Obviously I read and then I go online and I look around and I find out interesting things about them. And one of the first things that I saw when I was um, researching you and your life as a writer is that you really don't like to talk about sort of – what has inspired you or what you might have intended when when creating your masterful works cuz you'd really like the reader to to discover this and to interpret it on their own is that a fair assessment not necessarily okay. a, a, about what you said that I I don't like to talk about what inspired
1: me and that's not that part okay. is not true i do actually talk quite a bit about some of the writers and events that okay, have, have inspired my work um, what I try not to do is interpret the text okay. for my readers. I feel like I had my opportunity to say what I wanted to say within the covers of the book. And if I have anything else to say, I, I should have written it down. And it's too late now.
0: So that's – okay, that's good. So that's a very important distinction. So it's not its not that you don't want to talk about sort of what what the spark was. Right, but rather, okay. There was the spark. I can talk about that. But then I acted on that spark. I I laid it all out, and now it's yours. And and I I give it to you to to experience it however you may want. Is that better? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really feel that any yeah.
1: any book is a is a collaboration between the author and the reader, yeah. and so the reader creates the book in his or her head. When he or she's reading it. And I want to leave them to create what they choose in their own heads.
0: And have readers come to you with interpretations that are wildly surprising to you? There have been some humdingers, yes. Do you want,
1: can you give us an example? The biggest humdinger is the one that, that the idea of, uh, of my main character, Eugenides, as a Christ figure. Yeah because one of the themes in my book is that the gods and the goddesses in my pantheon interact with mortals in particular with Eugenides and it's never quite the thing he expects from having read all of the the epics of his own fictional world, and in his fictional world, the gods are always magnificent and poetic and, you know, reading off hexameters of direction to mortal men, and to Jen, they say, go to bed. Yeah. And, and there's this extremely uh, severe difference between his experience of gods speaking to him and, and what he expects from what his culture tells him the gods sound like Mm -hmm. when they speak to him. Mm -hmm. So the idea of Jen as a Christ figure makes me think, wow, what if Christ was a Jen figure? Yeah, Because he's extremely snarky and very sarcastic, and he gets so easily fed up with people. And I look back to all of our representations of, you know, God... As a burning bush and God, as, um, as in the representation of Jesus, is being so dignified. I'm like, what if they what? just edited out everything when they wrote all of this down? Um, so, yeah, that, that was what I thought of the first time somebody wrote me a letter and said, gee, he really seems like a Christ figure.
0: Yeah, you really had to flash back and think, is that, yeah, where did that, where exactly did that come from? He, he does have elements of self sacrifice
1: yeah, and I, I can see that, but certainly I wouldn't see the personality matching up. And
0: I think I remember reading uh, something that I liked very much, which was one initial spark, if we're going to keep using that word, was to tell the tale of someone who was underestimated. Is that right? Yes, the, the, And I love that because I think about that all the time. There was I think about go ahead, ha- you know, go ahead you know, underestimate me and, and um, it's sort of at your peril, you know, <laughs> that's, that gets me through my day sometimes when people are fussing at me, maybe that's more a reflection <laughs> on me, but um, I'd love that for for younger readers to sort of say, all right, you know, this is your story of, of, of the hero or heroine that's been underestimated and this is the potential that that awaits you, right? It is like that. I I really did, the very first
1: image in my head for this story was the moment when a group of people traveling together realize that they have underestimated someone who's been right there under their nose the whole time. And and I wanted the reader to have exactly the same sense of surprise that the people inside the story had, that they too had underestimated somebody who'd been right there under their nose. And I guess I... I guess you could look at it from the point of view of the person who's been underestimated, but I also like to look at it from the point of view of who around us us are we underestimating because
0: of the power of conventional thinking. I, I think that that's so important for all of us to consider, but particularly younger people as they're practicing how they consider one another and how they experience bias and and how they need to sort of be aware of it and check it and and reframe it i i think that is such a strong theme and i i love that through your work and through these really fantastic page turners that depth of theme and meaning is is always there and i love that you never underestimate your readers that you know that they'll, you know they'll find it in addition to loving um you know a rainy day spent with a book they'll they'll hear what you've got sitting behind that i think that's really so I great i do always sit down and write with the highest expectations yeah.
1: of my readers and i know that that's not a decision that a lot of young adult authors feel that they can make that in this day of television and internet and youtube and movies and so many other fabulous distractions like video games i think that people feel like they they have got to to grab the unwilling reader, yeah, and draw them in. and, um, and those books end up being fabulous. but I write from from the assumption that I have a willing reader. Yeah, that's be- interesting. That's because a huge I do that, I, I have a lot of freedom to write a very different kind of story, but I do recognize that I'm I am putting it to my reader to rise to expectations. and, and my hope, therefore, is, that this is a bargain that pays off for both of us. Yeah, that, that the reader who puts in the effort and rises to my expectations is one who gets a payoff and really enjoys the book.
0: Yeah, and you see that, you see that currency being um, extended and and received. I mean, through, you know, I, was, I, I also read some reader responses and ev- that this is what everybody says. They say, oh, thank you. You know, thank you for giving me something both delightful and meaningful. And it, it is obviously such a fine line to walk. It, but it is, I think, it's a gesture of real respect. Uh, oh,
1: you can feel that. Yeah, you, know, you can that, feel your respect, that, yeah. that I really trust the people that I'm writing for to read the book and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that maybe, back to your point about underestimating people, um, Maybe this comes out of my feeling of, of of being underestimated intellectually when I was a teenager, right? Uh, and and I think that that we could have more respect
0: for the intellectual activity of teens. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's and it's just so nice to to see good things created for them, frankly. So please tell us about this new book that has published in the series, or it's it's, it's considered it's very interesting. It's considered a standalone yet so much a part of the world that you've created, so tell us what you can because it's always hard to talk to fiction writers because I don't want to give stuff away, and particularly with your with your work
1: well, um two things one, one about standalone and not standalone. Okay, yeah you know it takes me a long time
0: to write a book and um Longer than – what does that mean? I don't well, even – Well, this one
1: took seven years. Okay.
0: This, this, I, that's this not one uncommon,
1: is... I have to tell you, as
0: someone who sits down with someone once <laughs> okay, a week. Okay, that's
1: good. That's reassuring to hear. <laughs> yeah. But it does make me feel that when you take seven years to write a book, that it should have a beginning and a middle and a really satisfying ending. So it's always been important to me ever since the very first novel I wrote that it would stand on its own as a full and complete story. And in the background, yes, there are links between the books, and I hope that there's a narrative arc, but I feel like um, I'm trying to write books that you can use to enter the series at any point. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that, uh, that this new book, The Stick Thieves, was originally meant to be the second half of an earlier book, The King of Atolia. Yeah. But then The King of Atolia became a whole book all by itself. And I realized that I was either going to write something the size of a cinder block, uh, which I don't like to do. I like to keep my book slimmer. um, Or I was going to have to break it into two complete stories. And uh, that, in fact, it would work very well as two complete stories. So I wrote The King of Atolia. And then instead of writing the second half of that book, I went and I wrote something completely different. (laughs) Yeah. And how long ago was that? I can't remember.
0: When was King of Atolia
1: published? King of Atolia came out in 2006. And then A Conspiracy of Kings, I think, came out in 2010. Okay. Which was not the second half of The King of yeah. yeah. I, I, I went, I, I suddenly decided that I had left that main character, Sophos, too long alone in the dark. And mm. I needed to go back and, and bring his story onto the main stage and tell that story before I could move to Thick as Thieves. But that wait actually, I think, turned out to be really good for the story because the King of Atolia was told in third person. Mm -hmm. And if I'd gone on to Thick as Thieves at that point, I probably would have told it in third person as well. Uh, In fact, I wrote a whole draft in third person and realized that I had to throw it away and start again, that it was really important that this story be told in the voice of my main character. Mm -hmm. And that main character is Kamet. And he is an extremely high-status enslaved secretary to a prince in the Mead Empire. And he has no expectation whatsoever that he will ever be free. But he has every expectation that he's going to be very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. He thinks that he is going to be the right-hand man of the emperor and essentially run the entire empire. So when an Anatolian soldier comes up and says, Kemet, you can run away f- with yeah. me and become a free man – his answer is, no, no, thank you, actually, actually, I'm good. Uh, and subsequently, events take all of his life plans and just entirely rip them apart. And he realizes that he needs to get out of Dodge quickly. Mm-hmm. And he takes up the Atolians' offer, and they flee the Mead Empire. I, I talked when i when I go and I talk to people about the books, I talk about the fact that when I first started writing the thief, I was really looking for a world to set my story in that didn't look like j. r. Tolkien's middle Earth, yeah, because i was I was trying to do something different right of course, and then I sat down and I wrote a quest novel, and it's entirely possible that the fruit did not fall as far from the tree as I thought. um and when i when I was writing Thickest Thieves, I know that I was revisiting a story I loved. The Eagle of the Ninth by Rosemary Sutcliffe. Mm. And in that case, my inspiration and my response to that inspiration was really more deliberate. Um, but it's definitely true, looking back at all of my reading, that quest novels are really important yeah. uh, in my childhood reading. And in a sense, Thick as Thieves is a quest novel. Mm-hmm. Because for the Atolian, he's been, he's been assigned a task by his king. He's been sent on a quest, and he means to complete it. Mm-hmm. But it's not his story. Yeah, It's Kemet's story, yeah. and it's told in his voice, and he has his own ideas right. of exactly how this story's going to go. Right. And so that was one of the reasons why it was so important, that, that yes, it's yeah. a quest, and no, for some of the other people in this
0: story, it's it's not a quest at all. Right. It asks us to examine bias, even if in this case, it's sort of bias of expectation, Um, you know, what you what you think is about to happen, because this is what somebody has told you is going to happen, and that should happen, and that you need to be responsible to make happen. And how that's rarely how it ends up happening. Right? I hope,
1: I hope that, that no, things don't come out, exactly as the reader expected them yeah. to. And yet, I hope that by the time they've gotten to the end of the story, they look back and are very satisfied with the ending. Mm-hmm. That these people have had both a, a physical journey mm-hmm. and a psychological sure. journey, and that they have both, both of them have gotten to a point that neither expected to be yeah. at the beginning
0: of the book. Completely unexpected, yeah. yeah. Segueing into sort of plotting, I've read that you sort of tell the whole story in a rough draft. You've, do you always put it away for a certain period of time? I'd read that once. I, I do find that, to that let it, it, justate, yeah. it needs
1: to, to go into a box to estivate for yeah. a little while, and then I get it out. And that what that does is it gives me a little more distance and then I have a better sense of what's actually on the page versus what's in my head. Yeah. I think it's very easy to, to think that the story in your head has been transmitted to the page when it hasn't been.
0: Yeah, and you need a little space for that. Yeah. But I've also read that you're not you, – your husband is your first reader, but you're not a part of a, a, a formal sort of group, a, no. a
1: writer's group. No. I've, I've never really been part of a writer's group. I am uh, – I have a group of – women who are friends, who write, to whom I'm deeply indebted because uh, they come out and keep me company when we have book signings. That, that oh, tragic yeah, really? moment when you're sitting in the bookstore all by yourself watching the people walk by the, the table. Your bookstore buffer. Right? Like... And, and people are not looking at you because they yeah. don't want to make eye contact because then they might have to talk to you and it might be embarrassing when they don't buy your book. Um, so, so we have a tendency to bolster each other That's at, at our your, signings. Your and book bookstore way, beards. Trisha Springstub can pitch my book, and I can pitch uh, Cinda Williams Chima's book, and and everybody can support everybody else. And if there's nobody there, at least we can talk to each other.
0: That's I think that's a pretty brilliant system. Yes,
1: and and it's a it's a professional group in the sense that we do talk a little bit about our writing and about things that we're struggling with, or about you know deadlines that we have to meet, and things like that. Um, but we don't. But it's not instance, here. read these 20 pages. No, no, it's not a critique sort of writing group. It's it's really a more emotional support kind of writing. Yeah.
0: Group. And and tell us a little bit about how you conduct your research in order to create such a rich sense of, of place in your in your work. I'm often asked about research.
1: And, um, and, you know, I, I think it it sounds so organized when the question is put that way. What's your research? Yeah, like, okay. like I had a plan. <laughs> it, it would be nice to think that I had a plan. Uh, but I'm somebody who thinks that we should continue learning new things for our whole lives. And I like learning new things. And I like going to see new places. And I often am interested in a subject with no idea of what use it might someday yeah. be to me or yeah. to my writing. And so I'm reading in learning about freight trains. And um, and and so I, I accumulate information. And then when I'm writing, what I usually am trying to do is look back. Instead of look forward about what I need to know, more often I'm looking back at what already occupies the back of my mm. head and what things I've seen that spurred my imagination. And then I use those things, I hope, To spur the imagination of my readers, so it's it's more like a giant museum. Yeah. Dust over a lot of do you lose your car keys
0: every single day? I do, I do. Because I can't imagine that. I mean, I can I can almost see it all stacked up going (laughs) from your eyes back to your head. And and people are used to talking to me and repeating themselves (laughs) several times because
1: no, I'm sorry, I was somewhere lost in the back of my head thinking about something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, so I've started doing this thing, which is the Proust questionnaire, but I do it like the, um, the game you play when you get your Chinese fortune cookie. So I ask the question, and then I add as a writer at the end of the question. So I'm going to throw a couple of those out to you. What do you think is your most marked characteristic as a writer?
1: My most marked characteristic as a writer is defying conventional expectations. Indeed.
0: Indeed. What is your principal defect as a writer?
1: I want to say defying conventional expectations, but oh, I, would have to say, I would have to say that I write really slowly.
0: Uh, what natural gift would you most like to possess as a writer?
1: I, the only thing that le- leaps to mind before I can think about anything else and that has absolutely nothing to do with being a writer is that
0: I wish I could carry a tune. Okay, that, you know, I like the answer. <laughs> <You know. laughs> what is your present state of mind as a writer? Very excited right now. Yeah. Um let's see. What is your motto as a writer? Read read everything. What turns you off as a writer?
1: Interruptions. I I once uh read an article uh, about a writer, and she said that the most important thing a writer has to know is that she will not be interrupted. And I, until I read that, I hadn't realized how true it is. It's not just whether you're going to be interrupted, but whether you know that you will be either interrupted or not interrupted. So Kristen Kishore also said at one point that just waiting for a plumber destroys an entire day of work. And, you know, if the plumber oh. comes at 5 o'clock, in theory, you could have been working until 5 o'clock. But no, just knowing that at some point during the day the plumber is going to show up means you don't get any work done. And so, yeah, the, the biggest thing I, I found that I need to write is not just uninterrupted time, but to know that my time will be uninterrupted so I can
0: work. Interesting. Um, what other profession than your own would you like to attempt, or let not even attempt? Let's say, guaranteed success. Mathematician. And why is that?
1: Because I think that what they do is secretly beautiful, but but I don't even know enough to be able to see how beautiful it is. So I think that it would be really really fabulous to be able to see the beauty in the proofs that a mathematician produces.
0: That's cool. All right, so segueing one more time to less about writing and more about publishing. Okay. All right, so someone who's who's been in publishing for over 10 years, what is it that most delights you, and then what is it that most frustrates you? And just try to ignore that your editor's literally sitting over your shoulder. <laughs> As you answer this As question. As I answer
1: this question. Well, I can say that, that uh, one of the things that delights me about publishing, about, about my particular field, is that I can write something and give it away or sell it and still have it. Oh. You know? I think about people who produce, you know beautiful ceramics or people who who paint paintings and either they're going to be buried by their own artwork or they're going to have to divest themselves of of what they've created
0: and i don't have to do that i can
1: keep everything i've ever made right there on a shelf in my living room
0: all right so i want to thank you so very much for the time and and for for all of your work thank you very much oh thank you thank you all so much for all of your work that makes mine possible. Thanks for listening. All of Megan Whalen Turner's print books, ebooks, and audiobooks are available wherever books are sold. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll leave us a comment, a question, a request, and we hope that you'll tune in next week for another one of your favorite authors when we give you author plus publisher plus microphone.